0: And welcome to the Village Traders Podcast. I'm your host, and Jabalan This podcast is aimed at helping new and experienced traders navigate the markets and learn from other traders. This episode is proudly brought to you by Vertex Media. They provide marketing strategies, content production and distribution, and community management. Check them out on, video- on vertexmedia.co.za. In this week's episode, I chat with a good friend of mine, Lisa Khisham Tien. He's an accountant, investor, and founder of T1 Capital and Finance Heart. Before we get on with the show, some upcoming events. I'm doing a live trading webinar with Simon Brown. We're trading a 25K portfolio, trading South African equities. I'll leave the link in the, in the show notes below. Please enjoy our conversation with Lisa Khishan. Hi, Lisa Khisham, man. How are you doing, man?
1: Um. Well, my man. Um. Yeah. Can't complain. Can't complain. All's well.
0: Yeah. 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 Um. You know. Take us through. Uh. What got you interested in the financial markets and and how you got um you got started in the financial markets.
1: Oh, uh, taking me very far back. Um. You're probably taking me to grade nine. That's 15. we eh? 15 in grade nine. Yeah, I think it's around then. Um, I think I never was a reader. And then one day I thought I was failing to fall asleep boarding school, Um, decided, let me grab a book. Um, And then maybe a page or two, I'll have fallen asleep. And yeah, tomorrow will be another day. Uh, The book I picked up was Rich Dad Poor Dad. Um, Read page one, page two, page three, lights out, went to the bathroom, Read, I think, like four or five chapters um, before I eventually went to bed. But I think for the last, how old am I now, close to 14, 15 years, um, I've basically just never stopped reading and consuming financial information. And I think from consuming that type of literature to it then sparked my interest a lot in business, um, which influenced the career path I took, uh, what I chose to study. And then, yeah, I went to university. And by the time I was in university, I was agitating to get started. And, yeah, I found myself uh, finally buying my first share um, through, I think, f Share Builder at the time. Um, for a good one or two years, I invested through them. And then um easy equities came about and for me it was an immediate no-brainer and yeah today I'm four or five years later.
0: Um so what 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 was your first share and why did you buy that particular share?
1: Yo um I think let's take two um if I remember correctly I think brain it was my first share I- 250 rand, no, no, much later on, actually. No, it was first rand, actually, because I banked with them. And the logic behind that was, let me invest in things that um, I share was, the reason I'm going to give you a couple is because I was so eager to start, but I also had a few ideas in mind. Um, the next one was Blue Label Telecoms. It's a share I still like and I still hold. Um, growing up, I used to work at my uncle's shop, and I used to see on Sundays he'd send um, myself or his son um, to go and deposit money for the spaza shop at the bank. And on the bank slip, it would always write "Blue Label Telecoms." Blue Label Telecoms, and I was always confused: why are we going to deposit money for bread? You know, if you know Blue Label uh, bread, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it says Telecoms at the end. And when I got to university, um, I was on a bursary program and they asked us to read FinWeek because it's a great magazine to keep up with business. And coincidentally, on the cover of the fin Week that month was Blue Label Telecoms. Yeah. Um, I think they had just listed or they'd listed a year ago. Yeah. So you can imagine um, that's the first story I went to read and I read up on it. And literally word for word, they described what I had seen working in my uncle's shop. And um, I think the price at the time was $350. Not too far from where it is now. Um, A bit after a long ride up and then down again. Um, Mm. But I remember fully understanding what it is that they do and knowing that I actually want to put money there. Um, I put a little money, not a lot, because I didn't have a lot of money. And yeah, from there, I think the journey had started and it now was a case of navigating the markets. I think uh, the reason I mentioned braid. Breit was the first share I bought after I started earning my own salary. So those other two was pocket money. It was Breit, um and Spanio Gold. Uh, braid because... I think at the time, I had read a bit about personalities and I thought, you know, if you follow the personalities, they probably know what they're doing. Uh, if you just check the share price, you'll know that they don't work out too well. And then, Gold, um, I, I have a close friend who's in mining, and he explained mining to me basically in the terms, you know, it's a hole in the ground. Whoever digs the cheapest hole has the... And Um, I used to frequent the mining department a lot with him, meet some of his professors who sit on some of the boards of the mining companies. And yeah, I think that's how I then fell in love
0: with Subanya and put money in. And
1: a few years later, this story also speaks for itself.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so in, in the very early, in, in the early stages, you, you were buying companies sort of more that you have some sort of uh, or any level of interact- interacting with.
1: Yeah, yeah. And knowing what I know now, um, yeah, it was it was more a hunch, a bit of work, probably confirmation bias because you'd probably just look for enough stories to uh, corroborate your beliefs. Mm-hmm. and then go in. And I think um, I learned a very painful lesson in that regard with African bank because um, I think we had, a even during high, um, varsity, we mm-hmm. had a, a, a birthday pool with my friends where we'd put money together. And if it's your birthday, we can buy you whatever you want. And I think for that year, I said I wanted um, to buy shares but a sizable chunk this time, not um, small amounts. By virtue of how expensive the fees were with uh, FNB. Um, I don't know if I can mention
0: them, by the way. No, <laughs> um, yeah, it's okay, man. Yeah. You, you can, you can.
1: Yeah, right, yeah. Now, they were so expensive that I knew that, you know, putting in 200 rand, 500 rand for that matter, within the space of a year... You know, if you've got um, 60 to 80 rand minimum uh, monthly fees, if I put in 600 rands, by the end of the year, you've made more money than I have. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I said to my friends that year, um, give me some money. Uh, my birthday pool. I'd like it to go into African bank. And I put it in and the premise was simple. You know, people that use African bank are people like my mom, um, my aunt, you know, teachers, nurses, people that have got a child in school, they need um, extra money to make the home homey. So to buy a TV, uh, couch, that sort of thing, unsecured lending. Mm -hmm. And surely they will never default. You know, I don't imagine a day that my mom would say that she's never going to pay her accounts, you know? So I figured, um, yeah, sure, they're going to pay back the money and Yeah, I think I learned very quickly there as well that um, it's something else to have a good story and it's something else to have good financials um, on your book. So I think you are correct. Um, It was very much things I was familiar with, um, a bit of research uh, to confirm what I understood, what I knew, and by then I was more than comfortable to then jump in. And I learned an expensive lesson. I think my investment within six months went to 31 cents and I couldn't withdraw that for a whole year because my portfolio value was so small, it would have cost more to sell the shares than to hold them. Um, (laughs) F&B wouldn't let me sell them. And so it just stayed there. And then I think when I started working 2015, after a year of holding 31 cents for 60 rand a month, Um, Yeah, I got so mad, I just went straight to the branch and I said, guys, I don't care how you do it, but delete this account of mine. And I think they donated it to charity or something like that, and they had closed the account.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, um, there's something to be said about starting with the stuff that you know, um, it's, it's it's not a bad way to start in the investment world. Because I remember yeah. you know when when you know I started buying um shares, I just you know randomly pick companies that I was familiar with on the Easy Equities platform. And that was before um applying a bit more of some quantitative and quantitative um methodologies into it. Um so so yeah. how 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 has your investment philosophy and investment methodology changed from just inv- investing in companies that you're familiar with and know of to to how you're doing it now? And um, take us through your your approach, both qualitative and quantitative at the minute. Um, it's changed
1: drastically. And I think to your previous question, um, look, investing in things you, you're familiar with um, keeps you going, especially at the beginning. It's very important for showing you what you still need to learn. So as much as I might have had confirmation bias you know, at least I then want to back it up with something, and yeah. that keeps me in there. Um, when you're buying things that you're familiar with, but I think, um, yeah, 2015 after the break, Spain by then had gone up and then come down again. Um, yeah, African bank was long was long past a past memory. I think I wanted to invest in Kuro. They were at 10 rand at the time. They rallied up to 27, but I hadn't pulled the trigger for some reason. Um, I was sitting alone studying, and I just said to myself, you know what, I'm tired of guessing, you know? I said to myself, I had to be honest with myself and say, you know what, this is a guess. Um, It may be more educated than other people in that I still do go and pick up the financials, try and read something, um, pick up the newspapers, Google some of the companies, but I still wasn't directed in my research. I didn't know what I was looking for. So I will Google Bread and hope things come up and then I'll make a decision based on that. You know? Yeah. And I said to myself, you know what? Um, you know the smart guys have always spoken about this Ben Graham guy, Ben Graham, ben Graham guy let me just actually, you know, give him a look. Surely there must be something to it if the best investors in the world reference him. You know, I've got nothing to lose. If anything, I've already lost some money. And going forward, I'm only going to put in more money. I knew that by then, so I didn't need convincing in that regard. Um, So I might as well learn exactly what they learn. And if it's out of my reach, I can draw the line now and walk away. And if it's something that I can work on, then I'm here for it. I think I was doing my honours in accounting at the time, so I was also quite comfortable that um, whatever financial terms he throws at me, I'll be able to understand them. And, yeah, just like with Rich Dad Poor Dad, um, my eyes opened up all over again. Um, The things he was saying were so straightforward, you know? Um, They immediately made sense. They immediately spoke to not only what I wanted to hear, but what I didn't know I wanted to hear. You know, when you go in to invest um, as a beginner, you think you're there to make money and to make tons of money. And he explained the whole logic of your first, the first thing that then you must do, it's inverting. I think Charlie Manga speaks about it a lot, is invert the question. Say, how can I lose money? and then avoid doing that. And Ben Graham essentially nailed that down. And I think after that, um, yeah, I just became invisible in that regard. So um, I don't know if you on the philosophy itself. Um, yeah, I've heard people say it's the value philosophy. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, just just take us through the the value investing or... You know, whatever you call it, you wanna call it a philosophy or investment style, or you know, kind of yeah. like how you you um, you pick um, your 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 investment to place trades.
1: Yeah. Um, look, this being a long-term game, you wanna be there in the end. And anyone, almost anyone that I've met says, if you're there in the end, you likely are gonna be quite well off, right? Mm-hmm. So. The first thing that i learned from graham is you don't want to lose any money and how do you lose money well the easiest way to lose money is for a company to have debt on the balance sheet Mm -hmm. and use it recklessly um it's great for amplifying returns especially in retail for example where the margins are something like three four five percent so if you use other people's money so, if I put in, if the company is looking for a 100 Rand investment and they're going to get 5% on that, that's 5 Rand on 100 Rand. Okay. If I put in 20 Rand and they get the other 80 somewhere, that 5 Rand for me is 5 Rand on 20 Rand, which is yeah. a 25% return, which is brilliant. But now I've got 80 Rand invested in this company that belongs to the bank or somebody else that if this company gets into trouble, they're gonna sell the company to pay off that debt. And it clicked. So that's the first thing that I look for. I look for companies that have got little to no debt. And if I can get that type of a company, um, it's got my attention. Mm-hmm. And then from then on- onwards, it's earnings. At the end of the day, companies there to make, um, yeah, to make profits. So I look for earnings and um, I know people are particular about every year it must be growing by 20% or every year it must be accelerating, whatnot. Having been in finance uh, long enough and seen enough scandals, I'm not too particular about that, you know. If Mm -hmm. you can have one year that knocks it out the park and 10 average years, I'm more than happy to hold your shares for two reasons um, or maybe more than two. One, you know, it's difficult for a company to grow forever. So at some point the growth stops and then the accountants are too afraid to tell the boss, the CEO, the chairman that, listen, we're no longer making money. And what they do is they start, call it cooking the books, you know, Mm -hmm. start reporting to the CEO what they think he wants to hear. And so by putting in that metric that says it doesn't matter to me if the earnings are increasing every year. Um, um, It it disincentivizes management from cooking the books, but it also helps me manage my expectations in that every year, I then look for a good enough performance or a decent average performance without feeling the need to panic am I holding the right share or not. The second reason is purely the way I process business. You know, January 1st, after all of us have said our new year resolutions, a company starts from scratch. Nobody has got mm-hmm. says everything is starting afresh, mm-hmm. and they now have to go out into the market and compete for customers. And whoever has the Marketing campaigns, the best products, the 10 Rand on the 10th of Jan, 500,000 on the 12th of July, up until come year end, the accountant sits and calculates how much money you made and then reports that. So when people say earnings only grew by 1%, they're undermining the fact that this year we repeated what we did last year and went 1% um, oh. over that. Yeah. And that's something that's very close to me when it comes to uh, um, evaluating management. That's even though I'm okay with a reduction in profits because as long as you're profitable, it means you've repeated what you've done last year and um, maybe just fell short 2% or 10%, which happens to the best of us um, at any given point in time. So that's debt and earnings. And from African bank, what I learned is it's very easy to have positive earnings and not be questioned until you're actually paying a dividend. And if you're not paying a dividend, it's very difficult for somebody that is very future orientated to actually realize that this company is not making money, they're cooking books. So you can be paying fluctuating, you can be having fluctuating earnings, but nothing there to keep you in check if it's really happening. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, dividend is that tonic that says, if they're able to keep paying me cash mm-hmm. back, it means that they, they are actually making that money. And two, they're confident that next year they can do it again. I'm not a big fan, uh, per se, of the notion that management must reinvest uh, profits back into the business. Because mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, management doesn't see investment decisions the way I see them. And that is that I've got other opportunities, not just their business. So I think that's a a long way of giving you um, the methodology in its entirety. So debt, very little to absolutely none. And then earnings, I want them positive. They can fluctuate and then pay me my dividend.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm... You, you you've taught me the the um, the, um, the investment style or the vin- investment philosophy, and with a um, call it a, a primary grade um, level of explanation that you know, I can just take that knowledge and transfer it to my yeah. to my ten year old niece with with relative ease. Yeah. And and you yeah. know in recent times, uh, a company like Louis came up and said um, they didn't they didn't need to utilize. Uh, yeah. Dates or debt date rescue to, uh, do, I mean, to rescue themselves using dates um, during the lockdown because you know their balance sheet was, you know, yeah. well placed due to I mean to your point, um, uh, low levels of debt. So do you think? Um, and you mentioned you mentioned uh, uh, African bank that you know it's very easy to cook the books when you're not paying dividends because there's no way of telling that. Um, the earnings that are reported year on year are actually real or or whatever the case is. Um yeah. and and the African bank at the time, you know, they were lending money to to low income earners, similarly to how Capitech is doing. Um, I'm interested in 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 how you view Capitech at the moment. Um, there's a lot of, of, of talk around Capitech uh, at um, mm-hmm. if the big banks are getting hit, you know, Capitech is inevitable and the pr- the share price of Capitech was, was doing the opposite of what it should be doing relative to its competitors, the big banks?
1: Um, uh, you trying to trap me. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Campitec doesn't meet my criteria, so it's not something that I follow. Um, yeah, Purely based on first principles, uh, mm-hmm. it's difficult for me to understand how a bank that banks As I said, with African bank having been burned, so a bank that burns banks, nurses, teachers um, in sub-Saharan Africa um, can outperform global banks, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, especially if you you look uh, from a profit perspective. And, yeah, look, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying that, yeah, they don't meet my criteria in terms of debt. Most banks don't because their balance sheets are linked to, in, to live investments. So their fair values fluctuate a lot.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's
1: difficult at any given point in time to say this is how much cash they have relative to their debts. Um, I think there's the cost to income ratio that people use there. It's just something that I don't understand too well. Um, as I say, just purely based on. Uh, first principles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not an investment that I think I'm anywhere close to. Um, how it compares to FNB, Absa, um, Investec, Standard Bank. Yeah, it's ultimately in the same boat. I'm probably more comfortable with them because they're not doing anything world-changing. And for me, from an expectation perspective, it it makes sense. You know, if you tell me that FNB is the 100th most successful bank in the world, I'll probably believe you because I don't think there's anything spectacular about banking um, South Africans. But if you tell me FNB is the top five banks in the world, then I might be questioning what the world is doing wrong. (laughs) That yeah, (laughs) that a bank in a developing country is outperforming them. I mean, on that note, there's a bank, Greenwich Bank, uh, started by Mohammed Yunus, he's a Nobel Peace Prize winner in Bangladesh. Um, that does lending based on uh, no collateral, and it lends to women. But he explains how then they're able to make that work, and it's not the best bank in the world, but at least it solves the problem. So that's something that I can understand. And yeah, I think I've probably even shown where I lean in that <laughs> regard. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, um. So you know, a lot of the people that I've, that I've spoken to on the podcast have been predominantly traders and, you know, slightly different from your approach in, in that, you know, we more short-term, you know, short-term based and you are more long-term based. And how we think of risk and reward is fundamentally different from how, you know, a, an investor would think of risk and reward. Um, I'm interested in, in finding out how, how you view the idea of risk and reward in, in, in any particular trade do you have any cap as to okay this is how much i 'm in, in, in my overall portfolio this is how much i 'm willing to expose my capital to each individual trade or how do you work your 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 weightings in your portfolio and and uh, the, the how does the idea of a perfect trade fit within your world as opposed to uh, you know, because it's fundamentally different to how we would, um, you know, look at a perfect trade and look at risk and look at um, exposure on a particular trade. Uh,
1: look, the more I actually engage in the literature, um, the more I'm appreciating that it actually it's the opposite. Fundamentally, we're the same. You know, we both don't want to lose money. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think um, in your world, it's I think that would be a stop loss. Yes, yes, um, yes. To limit that, um, whereas I've just chosen debt to limit that. So at any given point in time, if you check my capital, um, I don't mind being um, having a 30% drawdown on any one position, as long as the other fundamentals are in place, which is a, it's a, it's a tricky one. Uh, yeah, how do you do um, asset allocation slash risk management when you long-term? It's, it's near impossible. Um, yeah, but like you guys, you know, when you think of the idea of a perfect trade, as I said, having learned from Ben Graham, I would then put down these metrics. So is debt within the following uh, ranges that I'm mm-hmm. looking for? Uh, earnings per share um, consistent and within this particular range. Uh, a certain is a certain percentage of those earnings being paid out as a dividend. And then the price, I think the price, like you, is the only thing that I can control, yes, the yes. price at which I enter the trade at. Yeah. So using those two metrics, I would then say, what was, what is an acceptable return to get out of this investment? And for as long as the price doesn't fall below that, in a way that I can still enter that, uh, trade and expect to at least reasonably get that return. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't buy. So that for me is my buy signal. Everything else being consistent, and I think that would have happened a lot with Louis, not just over the years, but even with the pandemic now, where the price has been sitting on 30 rand, 31 rand for quite a while, and then now it's just plummeted to 14 rand, which is I think quite a 60%. Yeah, yeah,
0: somewhere
1: um, there. Price drop. Yeah, somewhere there. Um, for me, that's the idea of a perfect trade because debt hasn't, um, the debt position hasn't changed. Earnings haven't changed. Um, I mean, I'm talking within those ranges. And the dividend policy hasn't changed. The only thing that has changed is that the market is scared. And then yeah. they drop it into um, that value. Uh, what now people say value, uh, just the PE side and forgetting the debt and other fundamentals. Um, Yeah, then it becomes, for me, it becomes a no-brainer to execute that, buy Mm -hmm. that share and then let it over time just deliver as you would have expected it to deliver. Nothing fancy, don't shoot the lights out. The fact that I could buy it at 14 rand when I was willing to buy it at 30 rand means I've actually just doubled my return long-term if Mm -hmm. it just delivers as I expect it to deliver. So for me, that would be the idea of a perfect trade. And then add to that the sense that you're speaking about, you know, when you're a value investor, since so much of your methodology relies on the fact that you are saying that a company that doesn't have debt will survive the storms. Mm -hmm. When we are in a pandemic that hasn't happened in the last hundred years, there is only one opportunity for that company to prove to you that you were right. You said that I wouldn't fail during the pandemic. And then they release a sense that says we haven't traded from 27 March till 18 May. So all shops were completely closed. Even with that, we didn't have to dip into borrowings.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: They once they opened uh, trading, demand has gone up by 22% year and year on year. Um, Since they've been closed, their cash collection has been almost the same as um, it has been in previous years. Obviously, maybe a couple of percent down because of the virus. Uh, Management says that what they did was because they had to close their shops, they partnered with other retailers to then accept account payments on their behalf and using their superior electronic systems, mm-hmm. they can still remit that cash. So they close shops, so they're not incurring um, much expenses, but they're still able to collect on the debtors that are on the balance sheet. Um, so for me, that was perfect in that um, it did exactly what I expected on the sticker, mm-hmm. including the fact that they were still able to collect cash it's, it's why I can sleep at night, knowing that companies that I'm invested in can be in that position. Mr. Price is similar. Mm-hmm. Um, they even said they want to have a rights issue to go and take advantage of opportunities. So while their peers are closing down, they're saying they want to take advantage of opportunities. I think Spur is another one um, that said something similar to what Louis said, that the pandemic was hard, but we didn't have to raise any additional debt, so do you hear? It keeps triangulating around the same sort of metrics that mm-hmm. I would have been looking for for what I say my investment philosophy um, is, which is exactly the same in trading. You would, when you've made money or lost money, you would look at: Did you was your setup correct? Did you um, get a confirmation? Yeah. Did you enter the trade correct? did you look for whatever other matrices? When the stop was triggered, did you execute on that? Pardon me if I fumbled a bit of the trading <laughs> jargon. Yeah, you actually. But you it's actually, essentially that. Yeah, it's essentially that, and, yeah, yeah, you, yeah it's you, essentially that, yeah. and 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 yeah, and to it then being a perfect trade, I now don't know what is going to happen to Lewis tomorrow. Mm-hmm. nor does anybody else that does a discounted cash flow calculation or does a consult a Sangoma approach. <laughs> nobody knows what it's going to happen tomorrow. And given that I waited for, I, I found a company that had little to no debt. Earnings were on point. Dividends uh, were being paid. Price had dropped to a level that I could enter the trade. Mm-hmm. I entered it. Whether it makes money or not is completely out of my hands. If any of those matrices change um, over an extended period, so they start incurring a lot of debt, such that they, I worry, when if should another pandemic come, or they lose, they start making losses, meaning that every year they're actually eating the money that's on the balance sheet that was supposed to put them in a safe position if those matrices start changing, then that for me would be what you guys would say is a stop loss. It would be saying to me, get out of that trade, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then keep the little capital that you have. But yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a waiting game then.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You, you mentioned, um, uh, you know, a, a bunch of interesting points here, but I'm, I'm particularly interested yeah. on the expectation part and um do you, like any example that you have where you expected something from the company, uh, and it did another? You know, based on the on, on the matrix that that you, that you had, maybe the company lied to you or something as an investor. Um, but you know, you incurred that risk of you know you know we always talk about um, risks being the difference between expectation and reality. Um, any example yeah. of the the stocks or of a scenario where you know the company? Yeah, I can give you a few. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Um. let me even write them down. Omnia,
1: mm-hmm. Saso, um, uh, da, 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 da. what's this company? Oh, there are quite a few. Uh, Omnia, Saso, um, AdCorp, uh, I think top of my head, those are the biggest ones that um, gave me a knock. hmm Um, Omnia is an unfortunate one um, because they've always had a very clean balance sheet and then they decided to expand. Um, What they do is they make fertilizers, right? Mm -hmm. So they decided to change the process um, that they make fertilizers with. So I think they wanted to build a nitrate um, warehouse so that instead of buying um, the active ingredient in making fertilizers, they can produce it themselves, mm-hmm. right? And they decided to take out debt to buy that warehouse because, I mean, to build that warehouse because the cash generative, they'll pay it, they'll pay it off, um, yeah, easily over a couple of years. And as luck would have it, South Africa entered into a drought, and then agriculture took a knock a little longer than Omnia had uh, anticipated. And as a result, they ended up with skyrocketing debt covenants. Mm-hmm. Um, that was That's still a company I like a lot, but they became so risky and sat in such a precarious position. Um, they made a huge, huge loss um, in that year. Um, and the following year, it was anticipated to uh, continue that I couldn't justify holding that position. Even if I had faith in management, at the end of the day, you know, if, you're, if the debt is due at the bank, um, no amount of being a good guy is gonna make it disappear except to pay that debt. Yeah. So, yeah, So circumstances around them changed, but um, they had put themselves in a position where they couldn't accommodate circumstances, circumstances changing. Mm-hmm. And that's called the margin of safety. Um, a similar one is SASO they built they expanded um, I think bigger than their market cap in the United States and they incurred a lot of debt to do that but with them they just kept incurring more and more and more debt the more expensive the project became and eventually they ended up with so much debt that you know you. I don't foresee them paying off that debt anytime soon and now they're talking about asset sales and rights issues um yeah it doesn't end well in that regard i think what irked me in that sense was that management wasn't forthcoming um in that regard and i think that's something that you know sometimes people think you just look at the numbers and then you leave it at that so When you read the CEO's report, so I'll give you an example. Spania is one that breached my debt requirements, but I held on to it. Mm -hmm. So I held it all the way up to 70-something rand and all the way down to 7 rand. And now it's back up to 50 rand. And the reason why I was able to do that was because management explained that they've got an opportunity in the markets, I think around 2016, to buy assets at way cheaper levels than they would have at any given point in history. Everybody was exiting South Africa. I think the most not, um, notable one was Anglo at the time. Mm. And Spania then saw it as an opportunity to increase the balance sheet. And at every subsequent annual report um, release, whenever you read the CFO's comment, the CEO's comment and the chairman's comment, they said that their number one target for the following year was to pay off debt, reduce it to a level that is acceptable, EBITDA to whatever, get, uh, become profitable, and start paying shareholders um, dividends. And even though their financials don't look like what I'm looking for, they explained to me going in, while I was inside it, they kept reporting on those metrics, so they didn't change the tar- the target. They didn't all of a sudden start highlighting that we've got the best mining assets in the world. They kept my eye on the debt um on the balance sheet. And then now getting out of it again, they're still maintaining that um they're gonna pay off debt and um pay huge dividends. Mm-hmm. And then Ed Corp. Yeah, Ed I don't know what happened there, <laughs> but. You woke up one day, there was a sense at half past 5 p.m. on a Friday uh, saying that they're going concern risk out of nowhere. Um, yeah, and then there was something that I couldn't uh, reconcile with my methodology. And uh, yeah, I cut them loose. Yeah, yeah, so I think, yeah, there are more, but I think these are the ones that um, go to because of how they've taught me very fundamental lessons. When it comes to sometimes I can get it wrong in that regard, or sometimes there is an information lag like, um, that puts me in a position where I need to reconsider my position
0: mm-hmm. um, um, you know uh, you you mentioned that um, uh, one of the you, you, on your on your investment philosophy you you, you know it's, it's yeah. more qualitative and quantitative based on financial statements and the like. And, you know, those come out, you know, half yearly and annually. How how do you, do you emotionally uh, 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 and like in comparison to when you started and now, you know, yeah. manage the, the fluctuation in share price, you know, you know, you, you, there's a, the, there's a famous quote that you always, that you always say, and I, you know, I like quoting you on that, you know, that companies don't pay dividends from, from the share price. How do you... Yeah. Do you uh, how did you how did you manage initially when you started, and how do you manage it now from emotional and psychological perspective? You know the fluctuation in share price, and and lastly, uh, 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 where do you draw the line? Saying, okay, my it, you know investment analysis for this particular stock had been wrong, or I was wrong, and I like it. Where do you like uh, you know apart from uh, the stop loss? Whenever you in a trade where, you know, uh, uh, debt levels change or earnings drop to, you know, even lower levels, that uh, but fundamentally the debt. Um, how, do you, how did you manage the emotions uh, psychologically and emotionally, and where do you draw the line?
1: Yeah, And I think that's why they call it experience. Eh? <laughs> because I still worry when I think I'm right on Lewis and the share price drops 60%. Um, I don't not worry. I I do worry, I do go through the same emotions that any new investor goes through. Um, I think what helps me is that mm-hmm. or me what makes it worse is that I'm quite fanatical. I'm a nerd um about these things. I've had friends um that I invest with say, you know, I'm akin to Babe and how obsessive he is about his model. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think mm-hmm. let me first dispel that notion that I don't go through anything or, yeah, I barely go through anything, you know. Um, I'm very attuned to the fact that at the end of the day, I could be wrong and a company uh, goes out of business um, and I lose my money. But, Um, you know, at the beginning, I was going with the market. So when a share drops, whatever, 50% or whatnot, I would it would be confirmation bias would kick in and I'd try and hear why the market is wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Versus now, if a share drops 60%, I just check, did any news come out? If no news came out, then that's it. There's a sense, um, there's sense announcements for a reason. It's share investments, share events that affect um, the news, and they're supposed to come out to shareholders because we're supposed to know it before a newspaper writes it. Mm -hmm. And if management hasn't communicated anything to me via those portals, I have no reason to panic. Um, It can come out later that some people knew things that I didn't know. And as a result, I should have panicked with them. But, you know, how do I tell that that's the case? outside of management communicating with me, you know. And I think as each year passes and you see some shares that you sold shoot the lights out. Um, For example, Kumba. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm one of the people that at, I think when Kumba was 90 Rand, that's fresh from Ben Graham. I valued it at 400 rand. And it has gone on to do exactly that. I bought it, I think I sold it at 150 after they paid their first um, 17 rand dividend, interim dividend. Imagine. <laughs> I thought, I've doubled my money and I've got a 10% um, dividend on my share price, 20% on where I bought it, because I bought it at 90 rand, they're paying 17 rand. Um, held it, and then what happened? Um, I needed money, so I was in a bind. The lingo of emergency funds didn't exist at the time. And I went on Twitter and a famous analyst said the iron ore price is under pressure. This doesn't bode well for Kumba. And then I thought, okay, perfect time to sell. I was lucky it went 100% up and paid me 20% on top of that in the form of dividends. Let me exit now. I'm sure it will go down. I'll use the money for what I wanted to use it for. And then by the time it wants to come back up, I'll be in a position um, to buy back in. Kumba went to 520 and I think it's 570 now. So lessons like that remind me that, look, you have a relationship with management that says that they must release annual reports for you to make decisions based on. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, because I've been, I I was doing my honours at the time in accounting, I fully got to appreciate the purpose of financial statements from that angle as well, where it says in the IFRS, one of the opening chapters, the objective of financial statements is to give stakeholders useful information on which they can make decisions. Mm -hmm. The stakeholders are, investors and capital providers. And I thought, shit, this document is designed for me as an investor. And I go listen to a very smart and uh, respectable analyst on Twitter who, with all due respect, though, is not on the management of any of my companies, and therefore they're just speculating just like everybody else, and I have no reason to um, to sell. So I think over the years, I've then learned to panic that direction, look for communications by management. And if there's no communication by management, or if the communication is in contrast to the financials. So SASOL, for example, where you get the sense, at least where when I sold my SASO, you got the sense that management is saying everything is okay, but the financials say everything is not okay. Mm -hmm. They're firing the CEOs, yet the news that come out say, don't worry, we're going to sort this out in the next six months, you know? So I've learned to panic in that direction, and that's how I've been able to then um, hold positions that otherwise would have made me panic a lot earlier um, in the years. And I think as well, I've engaged with enough people, so I do make my... um, reasons uh, known to competent people around me mm-hmm. so that they can attack them and show me where there's holes. And then if they fail to do that, there's no reason that I need to panic. And I think that's something that Ben Graham closes with. Yeah. So I think um, that's that's a chapter that um, Ben Graham, the famous chapter 20, I think, or the last chapter, um, that. Even then, that's even why I'm maybe so loyal to this methodology. You know, he concludes the book by saying, after you've done all this work, have the courage of your convictions or have the conviction of your courage. I don't know the English too well, but essentially you've done all this work and you've proven this opportunity that is clear have the conviction to follow it through. And I think to your point then, after I've done that consulting and never mind the work I've put in, it only, it only makes sense that I should then um, just have the conviction of the work that I've put in.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, talking to you, I can talk to till the sun comes up and down, <laughs> you know, for, for years and years. And I always enjoy yeah. talking to you and and and, and learn a, a whole chunk um yeah. you know I hope to get you on the show again um before I let yeah. you go, man please give me i know you're a ferocious reader you know yeah. top five books that any um investor or, or trader uh, for that matter can 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 go through and and you know gain some um, knowledge. Oh, so investing specific uh, any any um Look,
1: um, I think I lean now more towards podcasts and um, other form of material uh, simply because of the quality that is now available. Mm -hmm. So I think um, uh, Fooled by Randomness uh, still ranks for me one of the... It was my blind spot. I've got my blind spot covered sort of book. So I'd recommend... um, the intelligent investor obviously or security analysis if that type of thing gets you off Mm -hmm. Um, but then once you've done that i think you fundamentally understand what business valuation is Mm -hmm. and how to then buy um shares using those two books Mm -hmm. right then from there i I then would recommend full by randomness because it just covered the blind spots Uh, So uh, it said, you know, it just said, be aware of this type of quality to how we experience things and how we reason and how we look back on events. It's a brilliant book for doing that. And then um, listen to Richard Feynman. He's a scientist, uh, Richard Feynman. I just love him because even though I never did science in school, I understand science because of him, because of the, he's a Nobel Peace Prize winner as well uh, in science. Um, I know the ones in economics are quite questionable because we still have world hunger and all of that. But in science, at least because we're making a lot of progress, you know, there's some weight to that. But he has a mannerism about the way he explains things and the way things should be understood that makes it easy. For me to have an outlook towards life that is scientific yet very practical Mm -hmm. and then from there um, it's resources like the fat wallet show that's very good for personal finance Um, recently the art of randomness sort of i'm promoting uh, (laughs) you know you
0: you you're promoting podcasts uh, 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 that that i that i that i like very much
1: yeah, you know, people like that, Patrick O'Shaughnessy's Invest Like the Best, um, they, those are nice material to consume and see how people that are where you want to be, your show as well, the guests you've had are brilliant, you know, to see how people that are where you want to be think. And for me, what those things have then done for me is they validate you. They show you 100 years ago, Ben Graham said this, and you can also do it. Then you read Seth Clermen, and you can you see that, oh, okay, he's doing exactly what I'm doing. Then you listen to a beat for you, and then you realize he's doing exactly what I'm doing. You know. Then you just realize that the difference between you and them is bank balance, and soon enough, um, it better show, you know? But I think <laughs> yeah, it's... Time. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's those would be my recommendations. And outside of that, it's your spirit itself. You know, have a spirit that wants to improve, have a spirit that wants to get better, that wants to do better. And I think even that can take you uh, a lot further than reading any one person's book. Because at the end of the day, you know, you read the book through how you perceive the world. It's going to change your perception a bit, but you still carry the predominant, uh, filter through which you process things yeah
0: yeah right man thanks thanks a lot we'll, we'll we'll park it here and you know we'll, we'll we'll get you on the show again thank you for your time and really enjoyed the conversation thanks a i hope lot. you enjoyed it as much as i did
1: thanks a lot mr jabs um all the best to you as well uh lovely work you're doing uh just keep at it i know it gets tough at times just keep at it man
0: you're yeah, on you. the right track no, thank you very much, Che. Thank you very much. Be sure not to miss another episode of the Village Trailer Podcast by subscribing on the favorite podcast and on our mailing list on Village trader. Please do follow us on Twitter at Z A, and follow me on, on Twitter at, at Njabulu underscore Gautje. Do like our Facebook page as well, Village Trader. If you have any other question, please feel free to mail me jabula at village Thank you for hanging us again this week. Check you next time on the Village Trader. Cheers.